So why don't you grab your Bible, turn with me to Ezekiel uh, chapter 10. We'll start there this morning. One of the things we're gonna learn is Ezekiel, man, he's deep, uh, mystical, mysterious. He's gonna talk about all kinds of uh, things that will make your head spin. I mean, this guy, he's, he's a, um, quite a dude. Ezekiel sees these visions that the Lord gives him. Now, uh, at first read, some of you might be thinking, man, Ezekiel's been smoking some weed or something. What's wrong with this guy? He's, he's a little hoo-hoo. Uh, but no, no, when you read the Bible, you realize that everything Ezekiel is saying is from God, inspired by God, and it gives us deep and incredible understanding. Uh, on chapter one, we're gonna talk about wheels within wheels and these cherubim flying everywhere and, and all this stuff. It's gonna get a little crazy, uh, but it's really good stuff. So I hope you can join us Wednesday night. We'll be covering these chapters uh, and getting through this book. But um, speaking of cherubim and wheels and what, what have you, we've got this interesting, but it's ever so sad, the, the scripture we're about to read. It's Ezekiel chapter 10, uh, verse 18. Let's check it out. Ezekiel ten eighteen. It says, then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubims. And the cherubims lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels also were beside them and everyone stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. What's going on here? Well, uh, again, flowery language, and we're talking about wheels and cherubim and East Gate and all that. What's that all about? Well, this is the sad moment that Ezekiel sees in a vision by God of God's glory departing from Jerusalem. Now, when did the glory of the Lord show up in Jerusalem? Well, it was even before Jerusalem was around. Do you remember the glory of the Lord? Does anybody remember? Quiz time, Bible question. Where was the glory of the Lord sensed or felt uh, in early Israel days? Anybody? Huh? The Ark of the Covenant. Somebody said it. I heard it. The Ark of the Covenant. Remember how it says the, the well, we remember, you know, um, there when the Ark of the Covenant was made, there by Moses as they were wandering in the wilderness, the Lord said, I will put my glory. And the, the, the word there is kabod in the Hebrew, kabod. And what is kabod? It means the glory. The, and, and the word glory is a hard word to translate into English. Our word glory is a little clumsy because we say, man, that's, that's you know, glory, old glory, or what, what is glory, the glory days. Like, what does the word glory mean? Well, in the Hebrew, the word glory, it, it, you'd almost define it as the weighty presence of God. The part of God that you can feel, where, where you sense his presence. Uh, what is that like? Well, I don't know for sure, uh, except I, I think we get a sense. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been to a church where you don't really feel like the Lord's even there? Uh, dead religion. Uh, you know, there's a lot of churches around the, the globe, the world that you can go into that maybe once had the glory of the Lord, but the glory has departed. Uh, there's churches in downtown Portland that I think once were, you know, filled with God's glory, but the more they moved away from the Bible and the more they went into their uh, crazy theologies and stuff, God left at some point. You walk in there, it's chilly, man. You don't sense the glory of the Lord. And I've always said it, if the glory of the Lord ever leaves this place, have you ever sensed when you come into church at Athey, you just kind of go, man, I feel like the Lord is here as he's, he's being worshiped and his church is here and people that love Jesus are here and you just sense the presence of God. I can't really explain it other than you sense it. But if the glory of the Lord ever leaves Athey Creek, just shut the doors, man. We gotta turn this into a bowling alley and go find like, where, where is God's glory? Go where the glory is. That's, that's what I would always say. Um, the reason I say that is because many churches, because they had a building and bills to pay or something like that, they thought they had to try to keep something going that God left a long time ago. Uh, I wanna be where God's glory is. Well, the glory was on the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which was made, the lid was made of pure gold. The box itself made of acacia wood or shatim wood uh, covered in gold. And, and the Lord says, on the mercy seat, they'd sprinkled the blood. And when the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat of the, of the sacrifice, the glory of the Lord came there. And then they'd put the ark in the Holy of Holies. And then that time, once a year, the high priest got to go into the Holy of Holies and he'd see the glory of God's presence. Uh, the, uh, some call it the Shekinah glory, which is the, the shining out. Did it glow? I don't know. But there, the, the high priest would come in, there was mm, 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 the ark of the covenant. 
Uh, that, that's really something. Now, the glory departed here, but before that, you know, there was another time the glory departed. Do you guys remember in 1 Samuel chapter four, when the, the Jews were being defeated by the Philistines and they said, man, we need some help. Let's get the Ark of the Covenant. It will save us, it will help us. Big goof. They were trying to say, our God is in a box and he's gonna come and help us. It was just kind of a bad harebrained idea. So they bring the ark in the camp, they you know, haul it down there and the Philistines go, oh no, we're in trouble. They brought their God into their camp. And the Jews, ah, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna beat the Philistines. They were all excited. Well, the next day they went out to battle and the Philistines crushed the Jews, stole the ark and took it home to put it in their temple to Dagon. And they set the ark right next to Dagon. And you remember the whole story, the, the, the fish god Dagon kept falling down in front of the ark and they kept saying, Dagon it, and they'd pick it back up. And <laughs> you remember that. And then they all got hemorrhoids. Anyway, it's an amazing story. Uh, no time to cover that one. But do you remember, do you remember during that time where the ark of the covenant was gone from Israel, there's, a, there's just a woman that's mentioned in the Bible who gave birth to a boy and she named his, his name was Ichabod. Who was he? The guy that rode the horse with the pumpkin, right? No, not Ichabod Crane, that's, that's uh, Disney or whatever. I'm talking about, um, I'm talking about Ichabod was the, the guy named by this, this woman. And why did she call her son Ichabod? Well, the word kabod means the glory of God. Ik means no. So no glory, the glory was gone. The glory had departed from Israel. So she named her son Ichabod. Remember this story? So that's another time where God's glory seemed to have departed. Now, the Philistines took the ark, stuck it on a cart and put some cows on the, a team of cows and, and, and the ark came back to Israel and they got the glory back at that point. And then Solomon built the temple. And if you remember, when Solomon built the temple, they put the ark in there and the glory of the Lord settled on the temple in Jerusalem. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jews knew that that was sort of the epicenter of where God met them there at the temple, on the temple mount in Jerusalem. And his glory was filling the temple, his presence. You could sense it, you could feel it. But that's why here in Ezekiel chapter 10, it's such a sad part of the story of the Jews. They had gotten so far away from God, so rebellious. And by the way, Ezekiel's a contemporary of Jeremiah. Um, he's talking about the same events that we've been covering in Lamentations and Jeremiah in the last few months. And, and so now he's saying, oh, we, he could see it. The Lord gave him the vision to see that the glory is left. The cherubims, the wheels, everything kind of lifted, went out through the east gate where the people were standing and the glory just left Jerusalem. What a sad day in Jerusalem for the Jews in Israel. The glory was departed. Man, I hope that that's something we would fear as Christians, to have the glory of God depart from our lives. I wanna be wherever God's glory is. I don't wanna do anything that causes God's glory to leave. Um, you know, whether it's sinful stuff or just goofy stuff that we shouldn't be doing. Um, but I want the, the Lord's glory just to fill my temple, this temple. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So for 500 years after, uh, you know, Ezekiel shares that the glory has departed from Jerusalem. For 500 years, the Jews just kept going. They had their temple, they had their priests, they had their religion, but the glory was not there. Dead religion is what it was. In the intertestamental period, you know, from the time of Ezekiel all the way till Jesus, man, that temple, well, it was just a political thing. By the time Jesus came on the scene, 500 years later, it was just a political deal. Caiaphas, the high priest, if you know who he is and studied him, he was a, a politician. He wasn't a religious leader. It's a little bit like some, some of the religious leaders today. Um, I, I wonder sometimes about these so-called reverends and pastors that are all into the politics and stuff where they, I don't even think they know their Bibles, not even slightly, um, but they, they're somehow called ministers and pastors and what have you. Um, that's kind of the way it was in Jesus's day. There were a bunch of religious guys. By the way, um, who did Jesus get the most fired up at? Was it the sinners, the adulteress, uh, the tax collector? No. It was the Pharisees, it was the religious leaders of the day, the, you know, the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all the rest. And, and Jesus, man, he, he hammered those guys. It's because they were dead. There was a dead religion going on. Well, you say, Brett, what does that have to do with Palm Sunday? Well, that's just it. The glory had left Jerusalem. When would be the next time after Ezekiel's prophecy here, or you know, insight here, when would the glory of God return? And, and what would it look like? 
You know, um, if, if you're a Jew and you're, you're realizing the Messiah is supposed to come, the glory of God must return someday to Jerusalem. When is that gonna be and what will that look like? You know, were they expecting something magnificent? Um, you know, if, if the King of Kings is gonna show up, man, who's, who's he gonna show up like? What's that gonna look like? Well, see, therein lies the story of Palm Sunday, where the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God of Gods will come into Jerusalem. And how does he come? On Palm Sunday, on a little colt of a donkey, cloppity-clop into the city. Uh, let's take a look at that. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 18? Uh, pardon me, Luke chapter 19. I wanna show you in Luke 19 something. Um, by the way, before we get into Luke 19 and read this, uh, I wanna give you, get you into the scene and the setting. And the best way I know to do that is, you know, um, one of the last times we were there in Israel, um, uh, Micah and I and Bryn and, and our crew that was there, we shot some video of where this, this happened. The whole Palm Sunday Road thing happened, well, you know, they got the colt from a place called Bethphage, uh, or near Bethany, which is on the backside of the Mount of Olives. If you go over the Mount of Olives, over the hill, you see Jerusalem, and then you come down the Kidron Valley. And I'll show you, I'd like to show you some video footage we shot uh, one of the last times we were there. This, of course, is taken from the top of the Mount of Olives. There's the Dome of the Rock Shrine, uh, where the temple used to sit, right there where that go Dome of the Rock is. Um, and that's the, um, the wall of Jerusalem around, and there's the East Gate. That's the gate Ezekiel's talking about, that the, the glory of the Lord went out through that East Gate. So here we are just cruising down this little, this little uh, ancient road, and, and this road kind of winds down through this massive, massive cemetery. Um, uh, it's one of the biggest cemeteries in the world. Uh, you know, all these um, Jewish uh, graves there. Um, and the graves are all facing Jerusalem. And, and they're not like our graves where, um, you know, they're, they're uh, doesn't matter which direction. These guys are all laid toward the Temple Mount, toward Jerusalem. And a lot of famous, you know, Jews buried there in that cemetery. But as you kind of wind down this road, um, this Palm Sunday road, as it's called, is because this is where Jesus rode um, his, uh, his little colt down into Jerusalem. This is also where you can get pickpocketed very easily. There's a lot of pickpockets in this area. Uh, you kind of got to watch your pocket. Um, there's my beautiful wife, Deb. Uh, and we're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're cruising down the, this little road where Jesus rode. Now, um, as it turns out, this goes down right next to the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus and his disciples would get out of uh, the city of Jerusalem, they'd come to this little garden that's on this little Palm Sunday road. And so we go in this little walled area where uh, the Garden of Gethsemane is, and we'd always get to do worship and communion. And it's, there's an olive garden right there. And we, the olive trees are a thousand years old. That's really kind of cool. Um, but these old olive trees, you can take the olives off and if, if it's the right time of the season, you can crush them and the olives are like blood red. It's really quite a picture, you know, the press there, the olive press. Um, but we do some worship there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, but, but after that, the, the road continues and we continue our little walk down the Palm Sunday Road where Jesus would then go into this gate uh, where he would go into Jerusalem. And that is when the glory of the Lord returned to Jerusalem, uh, because Jesus is the Lord himself, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God three in one, Jesus is there. And here's what I wanna do is I'd like to take a look at this little section of Luke, Luke chapter 19, and kind of read the Palm Sunday story and then we'll get into it. It says in Luke 19, 28, and when he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he came near to Bethphage, and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, why do you loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. So they that were sent went their way and found even as he said unto them, and they, as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, why loose ye the colt? And they said, the Lord hath need of him. And so they brought him to Jesus and they cast their garments upon the colt and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when, they, uh, when he was come near, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, 
the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees among the multitude said, Master, rebuke your disciples. Um, They didn't like what they were all saying. They were saying, this is the Messiah. Rebuke your disciples, they said, verse 40. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. I kind of wish everybody would have stopped singing at that point um, and see the biggest rock concert you'd ever did see. Uh, that would have been great. All the, all the rocks, hallelujah, hallelujah. I don't know, that would just be great to see. By the way, uh, sideline, uh, did you know the rocks are crying out? What do you mean, Brett? Well, even in Jerusalem today, they're doing all these archeological digs and they continue to find more and more uh, perfect proof of, of the early church and Jesus and his ministry. All these harebrained college professors that, you know, if you went to a secular school or even a Christian school, sad to say, there's all these college, you know, Jesus really, it was just more of a, a theme or an idea. He wasn't really a man who really existed. That's ridiculous. All you gotta do is go to Jerusalem and see uh, all the evidence. It's, it's incredible. And it's ridiculous that these guys are trying to make this narrative that Jesus never even existed or whatever. Um, all these bloggers or, and atheists online trying to hack, uh, you know, Christian kids that, you know, well, Jesus never really existed. That's just ridiculous. Uh, the rocks are crying out that Jesus is the Messiah, even this day, archeologically. But I digress. Uh, verse 41, this is kind of the, the crux of the matter. And when Jesus was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, if thou had known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Why would Jesus on this glorious, as you know, your Bible title says, Christ's triumphal entry, you know, or whatever they call it in your Bible, uh, you know, titles, Why would Jesus in this glorious moment suddenly start weeping and say, oh, Jerusalem? He's he's really saying, you know, when it says here, even thou, he's saying, even you Jews, if you'd only know what happened today, this is a huge event. But Brett, they're crying Hosanna and they're all excited. Well, do you understand this is a tiny handful of disciples? Uh, We don't know exactly how many, but these are called disciples. These are the people that were following Jesus down the road, spreading their clothes. <clears throat> we know there were levels of disciples. You know that, right? <clears throat> there, was, there was John, the apostle, who was probably the closest to Jesus. <clears throat> then there was Peter, James, and John, <clears throat> you know, the three that got to be at the transfiguration and a few of the more intimate events. <clears throat> and then after the three, <clears throat> pardon me, there was the 12. Uh, after the 12, there was the 70. After the 70, there was 100. Uh, remember the 100 and the 70, they all left when Jesus showed communion. Remember those disciples that said, he wants us to eat his body and drink his blood. Uh, we're out of here. Pure, that happened in the upper room. Um, that, that was that group of disciples. Probably some of the same people that were here spreading their clothes saying, Hosanna. Those were also the people left at the upper room and said, ah, we're out of here. So it wasn't all of Jerusalem seeing Jesus coming, saying, Hosanna, you know, the reason Jesus is weeping, he's saying, Jerusalem, Jews, you guys, if you'd only known in this thy day, well, how could they have known what day it was? And what's the deal with this? How, why does he come in on a colt, riding a colt of a donkey? Like that's, that's, that's weird. If he's the king of kings, why does he come in like a king? Show himself as a king. Don't blame the Jews, Jesus. You, you came riding in on a colt and, and a bunch of weird disciples saying, Hosanna, how, how are people supposed to know who you are? What's going on there? Well, there's an answer that's kind of interesting. Um, and it starts to make us wonder why a nameless little colt carrying Jesus into Jerusalem. I marvel at this. You know, there's been a lot of triumphal entries of kings over the centuries. Um, as a student of history, if any of you guys that study history, you know, that's one of the big deals. After you conquer a city, the king will ride in. Alexander the Great was probably the most famous of that. Uh, you know, he had, he had, you know, riding in after conquering a city or um, even Napoleon, he had a famous horse named Marengo. Marengo, he'd ride in as, as a conquering little short guy, you know, he'd ride in uh, and say, I'm the boss. Any questions? And it was, it was intimidating, it was powerful. That's what Jesus should have done. Reminds me of a story. 
um, in 345 BC, there was a, you know, a leader there of the Greeks whose name was Philip, Philip II of Macedon. He was the Macedonian or Macedonians, however you say it, people say it. But, but um, Philip was a guy uh, who was uh, powerful, but his little son loved his dad and thought it was cool that he rode a horse. So the little son kept asking his dad for a horse. Well, the, well, the dad's, uh, you're too young for a horse. So Philip, this leader of the Greeks, gave one of their slaves to, to uh, the son, this kind of cruel uh, thing that they made this poor slave become the horse of this little five-year-old. And the little five-year-old put a bridle in his mouth and sometimes wore spurs and rode him around the house, this, this slave. Um, now, interestingly enough, the slave of Philip II, uh, the, the name of the slave was Oxhead. If you translate it from Greek to English, his name meant Oxhead. So there's um, you know, this little boy riding little poor Oxhead around the house with spurs and bridle. Kind of a horrible deal. Well, finally, the son gets old enough and Philip II buys his son a black stallion. And this black stallion is beautiful. It has a white star on its forehead, but everything else is shiny black, a powerful horse, beautiful horse. And guess what? This little kid, he named his new horse Oxhead um, after the slave that he rode around the house all the time. Well, as it turns out, if you translate Oxhead into the Greek, the word oxhead is Bucephalus. And if you know who Bucephalus is, probably the most famous horse in history was the horse of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great got this horse named Bucephalus. And, and, and it's an interesting story because um, that horse went through many uh, military campaign and rode into battle uh, many a times. Um, and what exactly happened to Bucephalus? Uh, there's, there's history that's kind of, it's debatable, but eventually the horse was slain in battle. And there's a, a couple cities named Bucephalus um, uh, after the horse of Alexander the Great, uh, because they believe maybe uh, Alexander's horse was buried there. But there, there's a whole debate about that. But why are you talking about Alexander the Great and Bucephalus and uh, the horse and all this stuff? Well, I find it interesting did you know that Bucephalus and Alexander the Great rode into the very same Jerusalem that Jesus rode into? But these two kings or conquerors came in very different ways. In fact, I find it kind of encouraging and enlightening to compare the two. Alexander the Great with his horse Bucephalus and Jesus the Messiah with his little colt of a donkey. Let's compare and contrast just for a moment. I find this interesting. You got Alexander and Jesus. Number one, the first thing that we look at is Alexander um, they, and Jesus. They both um, started their careers at an early age, um, but uh, both also died at an early age. They were both right around 33 when they died uh, at the peak of their you know, life and their, their work. Alexander was born the son of a king. Uh, Jesus was born the son of a conqueror. Um, Alexander uh, was born in a mansion. Jesus was born in a manger. Alexander at the end of his life was thought to be a massive, huge success. Jesus at the end of his life was thought to be a dismal failure. Um, Alexander died in splendor in Babylon, you know, conquering the whole world and all. Jesus died seemingly in humiliation at Golgotha. Alexander shed the blood of millions of men for his own personal gain. By the way, you know, as, again, if you're a student of history, one of the things we sort of romanticize these ancient kings and their conquerings. And, you know, if you study, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Genghis Khan or, or Alexander or, you know, um, uh, people like Julius Caesar, you know, these guys, we all think, oh, they were amazing guys. They slaughtered men, women, and children by the millions. Like these guys were really brutal dudes. Alexander killed millions of men for his own personal gain. Jesus shed his own blood for the gain of millions of sinful men. Alexander enslaved men, Jesus liberated men. Alexander conquered lives, Jesus conquered death. Alexander cried out, you know, at the end of his life to his followers that there were no more worlds for him to conquer. Um, Jesus comforted his followers because there was a better world to come. What a difference, Alexander with Bucephalus, Jesus riding on the colt of a donkey. Uh, what, a, what a crazy compare and contrast. By the way, if you ever wanna do interesting stuff, compare Jesus to all figures of history. Compare Jesus with Muhammad. 
I mean, there's a comparison. You know, Muhammad was a bloodthirsty warlord. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. Like, I'll take Jesus over all these people every single time. Well, the first thing we wanna look at here about the, the, why the donkey, number one, the number one reason why Jesus rode in on the donkey instead of Bucephalus or a fancy schmancy horse, number one, to fulfill God's word. What? what, why is this fulfilling God's word? Well, this is where the Bible is just so great. The Jews should have known. That's why Jesus in you know, Luke chapter 19, that's why Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, you should have known. In this thy day, what's happened to your peace? But it's hidden from your eyes. What was hidden? The word of God said the Messiah is coming and it gave very exacting details. For example, Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Um, the prophet Zechariah hundred, several hundred years earlier said, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, <clears throat> another name for Jerusalem. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, he is just, having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. The Bible hundreds of years earlier said, when your king comes, he's gonna be coming humbly, lowly, riding on the foal of an ass. That's Zechariah 9, 9. Daniel chapter nine, verse 25. This is a famous prophecy, the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. And the word week there, by the way, is, is a bit confusing for us English readers because we talk about a week as being only you know, seven days. But in Bible, you know, the word here, heptad, uh, is actually a week of seven days or a week of seven years. But you just made that up. Nope, I didn't. Um, Genesis, remember Genesis 29, uh, where uh, Isaac, uh, pardon me, Jacob worked for Rebecca for those seven years. And the Bible says and when he fulfilled her week, that seven year period, he uh, got married and the dad, Uncle Laban, you know, did a trick on old Jacob and married him to Rachel, who made your eyes hurt, the Bible says. Uh, so he says, what happened? You married? So he had to work another week, heptad. Um, so you, you say, okay, Brett, what does that have to do with anything? Here's the thing. In Daniel 9, the prophecy was given about the coming of the Messiah when the glory of God would return to Israel after it had departed. And remember, Daniel was a contemporary of Jeremiah and was a contemporary of Ezekiel. So these prophets were saying stuff that all lined up perfectly. And here's what the prophecy that was given to Daniel said, know therefore and understand. In other words, figure this out. That from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince shall be, and here's this confusing number, seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Huh? Seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Well, if you figure out the King Jimmy there, uh, basically it's this, I'll replace it with 69 weeks or the, 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 the word there should be heptads, 69 seven-year periods. Are you guys still with me? What's 69 seven-year periods? Well, carry the one, do a little math. Uh, 69 times seven is 483 years. Okay, so what did the verse say? It said, the Messiah, the Prince shall, shall come. And here's the definition. From the, the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, to the time the Messiah comes will be 483 years. So the Jews could have figured this out pretty easily, but it was hidden from their eyes. That's what Jesus said when he rode into Jerusalem that day. How was it hidden? Well, this is how it works out. If you just kind of figure it out, the Jewish calendar, which is, uh, you know, we, whether you're using a Gregorian calendar or a lunar calendar, it changes the whole thing. So if you're getting out your calendar, you first of all you have to use a Jew, uh, Jewish calendar that is a, a year of 360 days. And, uh, and then also there's no year zero. Like there's people that have done the math on this and figured it out. It's not super easy, but basically, um, if you break down this, this 483 years with the Jewish calendar, 483 years times 360 days, that gives you 173,880 days. So all you gotta do is if you're a Jew like Daniel, or one of the Jews in captivity, or, or the Jews of, of even Jesus' time, you go from the time when the commandment was given for the Jews to go and restore Jerusalem. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The Jews were in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. When along came one of the leaders at the time named Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes uh, gave the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem 
When? Well, as it turns out, March 14th, 445 BC, the commandment was given. Now, remember, when the Jews were in captivity, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, um, uh, those guys went to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. The command was given March 14th, 445 BC. If you add to that 173,880 days, it brings you to an interesting date, April 9th, AD 32, which is the very day that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. Is that pretty cool? I think that's pretty cool that the Bible gave the Jews that kind of precision on the first coming of the Messiah as he rides in Jerusalem. Here's the Bible giving Daniel hundreds of years earlier, uh, check this out, when the commandment goes to restore, you can set your watch. And they, that's why Jesus, when he wept over Jerusalem, that's why Jesus would have said, oh, Jerusalem, you should have known in this thy day what's happening to your peace. But it was hidden from their eyes. What was in this? The math that I just showed you. Now, what's interesting, Brett, are you saying that the second coming of Christ is gonna be mathed out like this? It's not, as it turns out. One of the things the Bible says about the, this is the first coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ, no man knows the day nor the hour. We don't have that kind of calculation. The reason I say that is because people love this stuff. I, I love this stuff. But then they try to say, well, we can figure out when the second coming of Christ is gonna be. Well, the answer to that is no. And if somebody's claiming they know when the second coming of Christ is, uh, they've been drinking their bathwater. Uh, so, so don't listen to them. Uh, go with what the Bible actually says. That's, that's really important. So, so you say, Brett, what, what's the point? Well, the point is Jesus riding on a colt of a donkey, Zechariah 9, 9, was fulfilling God's word. And the very day that he rode in was fulfilling God's word. The reason Christ did what he did on that day, the way he did it was fulfilling scripture, confirming that he was legitimately the Messiah. And what an interesting thing it was that day that the Jews largely missed it and they didn't understand. So number one on our list, you know, to fulfill God's word. That's why a nameless little colt of a donkey on that day. But the second consideration on this Palm Sunday about this nameless little donkey that he rides in, the second reason he does it this way is to reveal God's heart. Reveal God's heart. What kind of king would ride into Jerusalem on that day on a colt of a donkey? Now, you know, when I was a kid, I rode horses, didn't like it because horses bucked me off all the time. I wasn't a great horseman as a little kid. Uh, so I got into dirt bikes because then if you crash, it's your own fault. Uh, nobody was bucking you off, you just were dumb. And I could, I could live with that. But my sisters, they were you know, into horses and we had a couple horses on our little farm as we were growing up. Um, but uh, horses, man, they're, they're tough. Now, I, I have ridden a donkey. Have any of you guys ridden a donkey? My next door neighbor, Kirk Daly, had donkeys. We'd wake up every morning. Oh, 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 oh. I do that pretty good because I woke up every morning um, <laughs> with that in my ear. But one thing about riding donkeys, you cannot look cool riding a donkey. It's impossible. <laughs> I, I challenge any of you to get on a donkey and try to look cool. Like try to be John Wayne. <laughs> you know, it's like comedy, comedy, they, they just, they're just really bouncy and, da, 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 and it's like a little vibration. Da, 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 da. And when we go to Petra, uh, you can rent a donkey. Some of our people rent donkeys to, you know, they, they donkeys carry people around the, the cliffs there in Petra. Um, it's a little sketchy, but some of our folks have done it and they don't look cool at all. It's like, they just, uh, but the thing is, um, isn't it amazing that Jesus rode in, you know, it's, it's, it's always funny to me because the, when you watch the Jesus movies and stuff, um, you'll never see the actor in the Jesus film on Palm Sunday. You'll never see the whole actor of Jesus riding the donkey in the whole picture because they always show this donkey and Jesus standing there, but then they zoom out and then they just show Jesus but, and, he's, and he's riding like, like this, you know? <laughs> like he's like, like a horse, you know, sauntering down the Palm Sunday road. But they, they'll never show the real picture of the whole thing because he'd be more like <laughs> It's not very royal. It's not very kingly. What's your point, Brett? My point is this. God came to man and came in the most unintimidating, most unimpressive really way. And he came that way for a purpose. He wasn't coming to condemn the world like Alexander the Great or to judge them or to say, I'm in charge. You better get on board or you're gonna be dead. That's not what Jesus came to do. He came in such a unique fashion. No other king in history has done it. 
And how did he come? Well, Psalm chapter two sums it up perhaps the best. Psalm, pardon me, not Psalm, Philippians chapter two. It says, let this mind or attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of what? No reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What king comes in this way? You know, Napoleon with his little uh, height complex, um, riding his Marengo, and by the way, Napoleon's horse, Marengo, you can see the bones, the skeleton of that horse in a British museum to this day. Marengo's skeleton is on display. But Napoleon would ride in on his glorious Marengo because he was a short little guy and he, he wasn't impressive. So he'd ride in on the horse and look impressive. But Jesus, he comes in and makes himself of no reputation, takes upon the form. There's some operative words here. No reputation, servant, better translation, slave. Um, and also it says he humbled himself and became obedient even to the death of the cross. The king of kings came to do a work and it was a work of humility, and it was a work of meekness, and, 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 um, and it was unimpressive. It wasn't meant to blow everybody away, it was meant to draw people to himself. Um, it's not just Philippians chapter two, but there in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, where Jesus said, you know, that classic scripture, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he says, take, my yoke upon you and learn of me. Now here it is, what do you learn of Jesus? Learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart. What is Jesus? Meek and lowly in heart. Man, our culture, our world, we're so into making ourselves look cool and look at me and you know, like I'm always amazed at the music that we listen to and these musicians and famous people, it's all about making themselves look as cool as they possibly can look. Um, you know, our Instagram accounts make me look cool as I could possibly look or as good as possible. But Jesus did the exact opposite. And by the way, it says, you know, um, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, Philippians 2, where he made himself of no reputation. We're all about reputation. That's humanity. But Jesus makes one autobiographical statement about himself. In his whole ministry and life, he says one thing about his personality and his demeanor. And here it is. He says, for I am meek, and lowly in heart. That's the God that came and visited man. Uh, did it totally opposite of what the world would expect or do. Palm Sunday, man, it speaks of who God really is. So number one, we, we see that the little donkey scene on Palm Sunday was number one, to fulfill God's word. Number two, to reveal God's heart of meekness and humility and lowliness. But thirdly and finally, it's a beautiful picture to God's people, to picture God's people. What's the picture that we see of God's people? Well, I see in this little cult of a donkey, um, it's a interesting picture of you and me. Now I've been saying the word donkey, the King James uses the word ass, and that would probably be more appropriate because we're talking about each one of us. Some of you are nervously laughing. <laughs> did he just say what I thought? Did he just call, honey, he just called us. Yep. It's a picture of God's people. Brett, come on, a donkey. Hey, in the Bible, I, you talked about this a few weeks ago, Brett, that we're pictured as sheep. I like sheep, you know, but I'm not an ass. Well, as it turns out, did you know the, the donkey or the ass of the King James Bible? Did you know it is also a picture of humanity? Uh, if you're a Bible student, you'll realize that the donkey comes into play when it's talking about humanity. Um, when you think of the personality of a donkey or a mule, what's a characteristic that a lot of times people? Stubborn, stubborn as a mule, that stubborn old donkey. Um, boy, that's a picture of humanity right there. But, but did you know that the Jews had a, a biblical law from the law of Moses that had to do with a donkey being a picture of themselves? And they were required to do something so that their kids would learn the lesson. Can I take you all the way back just for a quick moment to the book of Exodus chapter 13, verse 15, 13 through 15. Because uh, here's where the Mosaic law is about the donkey. Listen to this, this is an interesting little story. It says, and every firstling of an ass 
thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break his neck. Break whose neck? The donkey's neck. If the firstborn of a donkey is not redeemed with a, with a lamb, you're supposed to break the donkey's neck. That's the rule. And all the firstborn of man among thy children shalt thou redeem. And it shall be when thy son asks thee in time to come saying, what is this? Why are you gonna break the donkey's neck, dad? Or why did you kill that little lamb when that donkey gave birth to the firstborn of its donkeys, dad? And the dad's supposed to say, uh, middle of verse, uh, this, this section, that thou shalt say to your ch child, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh would hardly let us go that the Lord slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beasts. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all that openeth the matrix being males, but all the firstborn of my children I redeem. Huh? What? The, the child is supposed to hear the story of the Passover, interesting time of year as the, the Jews are celebrating Passover. Um, the Passover, of course, was that amazing time where the spirit of death was coming out of all of Egypt and the firstborn of each house would die unless a lamb was slain and the blood of the lamb was put on the doorpost and then the death would pass over their household. So in the Mosaic law, the Lord wanted the people to remember, you know, if you're, if you're a person, you deserve death. You deserve to have your neck broke like this poor donkey. But if you wanna save the donkey's life, you gotta give a lamb as a sacrifice for the firstborn of the donkey. And then when Junior asks, hey, uh, dad, why are you doing all this stuff? We're supposed to remember that we're the ones who should have been the ones dying. But because of the redeeming work, the blood of the lamb, of course, in Old Testament times, they were looking forward to Jesus. Remember John the Baptist? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the whole world. All of that Old Testament stuff's pointing forward to Jesus. So here's this little donkey um, who's given Jesus a ride. You say, Brett, what does that have to do with all this? Well, this, all this stuff fits together perfectly, but the thing that I'm amazed and amused by is that the Lord compares you and I to a donkey in the Old Testament here in this picture of the redeeming of the, of the donkey. And some of you and I, you know, many of us, you know, you and I, we, 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 we thought we were Marengo or Bucephalus. I'm a mighty person, I'm amazing. But the older you get, you realize, no, I'm just a little donkey. But good news, the Lord's redeemed us, first of all. We've been saved by the blood of the lamb. But secondly, isn't it interesting that the Lord uses donkeys like you and me. I love that phrase in the Luke 19 narrative that we read earlier where um, you know, the, the owner of the cult, if he comes up and says, what are you doing? The disciples, what, what was their response supposed to be, anybody? The Lord hath need of him. Question, does the Lord need anything? Well, it sure seems like he does. Either Jesus was lying there and says, the Lord hath, tell him the Lord hath need of him. La, 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 Is that what was going on? No, I, 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 here, as it turns out, the Lord says, I needed that. So tell him I need it. And, and, and I wonder about this. You know, you, you, I get what you guys are saying when you say, yeah, the Lord doesn't need anything. It's true, but isn't it interesting that Jesus said, yeah, the Lord needs a little cult of a donkey to carry him into Jerusalem to bring him to all the people. And why does the Lord use a donkey? Why does he need a donkey? Well, he, he's using the donkey because he wants to come in to fulfill Bible prophecy, but also to real, reveal his heart of humility. And in the same way, the Lord wants to use a donkey like you, who's unintelligent and stupid like me. Brett, come on, now you're crossing like you called us an ass and you told us we're stupid. Hey, listen, who does the Bible tell us God uses? The weak and the foolish things of this world. Guess what? We qualify. We can be used by the Lord because we're, we're the donkey. We're, we thought we were gonna be Bucephalus. We thought we were gonna be Marengo, but no, we're just these little donkeys. The Lord says, I'm gonna use that guy, Brett, not because he's an amazing pastor and he's really smart and good looking too. No, the, <laughs> I'm gonna use a guy that everybody will go, wow, that's amazing that God can use a guy like that. That's amazing. God is amazing. See, if Jesus would have rode in Bucephalus, people said, wow, that's impressive. But Jesus rode in on a donkey, and I think he's still doing that. He's still riding in, if you would. Uh, what does the, the, our city, Portland, need? 
People need to see Jesus. People need to see Jesus and, and people need to see Jesus through people like us who are not that impressive, who've made some big mistakes in life, who, who the Lord can say, yeah, I can write in on that. And then, then that they might see me, that they might glorify me. It's not about the donkey. It's about the Lord Jesus. And I love that the Lord chooses to use the weak and the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And you and I, guess what? We qualify. We're qualified for this. Is the Lord using you right now to carry himself in? Uh, that's what the Lord wants us to do. The last things Jesus said before he ascended into heaven is he said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples, baptize people. Like this is what we should be about. Um, pointing people to Jesus, glorifying Jesus. It's not about the donkey. It's not about me. How much of what you do in your life is about you and how much of what you're doing in your life is about magnifying Jesus, glorifying Jesus? Because guess what? The glory has departed from Portland. Um, even as Ezekiel, this is where we kind of take it full circle. Ezekiel sees in Ezekiel chapter 10, the glory leave the temple in Jerusalem. What a sad day that was. The glory came back on Palm Sunday when Christ entered in Jerusalem. Yeah, but Brett, then Jesus died on the cross and then he rose from the grave and then he ascended into heaven. So the glory's still gone from Jerusalem. Yes, but do you remember what Jesus taught his disciples? He says, it's really good that I'm gonna leave you. John 14. It's good that I'm gonna leave you because after me comes my Holy Spirit that's gonna fill you, comfort you, and remind you of truth and dwell in you. My Holy Spirit is in you and he'll be with you and in you and upon you. Remember when Jesus taught all that stuff? How could Jesus say it's good that I'm leaving you? The disciples, they were troubled. That's why he starts the whole thing off. Let not your hearts be troubled. Remember that, John 14? Why? Because he was about to leave but he was leaving them with the Holy Spirit. And then Paul the apostle comes along the way and says, what? Don't you know that your body is a, what? Temple to the Holy Ghost. So Ezekiel sees the glory leave the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus rides in Jerusalem, the glory returns. Then he ascends and leaves. But then he says, guess what? I'm leaving my glory, my presence, my, my um, you know, beauty, I'm gonna fill your body that's a temple. You know, your, your body, are, are we that big of a deal? No. What does the Bible say? Your, your body is this earthen vessel, a mug of mud, a jar of clay. That's all we are. But we have in these jars of clay, what does the Bible say? The excellency of the power of God that's not of us, but it's in us. That's why Paul would say it's Christ in you that's our hope and our glory. It's Christ in the church, in us. That's why it's so important. It's not about the building of the church. It's about the building, what's the body of Christ. And it's our bodies where Christ dwells. That's why, you know, if you come to this building on a, you know, Monday morning, it's just a big empty warehouse. And some people even told me, Brett, when there's no people here, it's creepy. <laughs> big empty building, warehouse, that's all it is. But what makes this the church? You. Uh, Jesus is riding into this place on the colt of a donkey. That's you. And you're the temple where God says, I'm gonna dwell in that temple. I'm gonna be in that temple. And, and it's about what you and I get to bring to the, the whole experience as a church, but also what you bring to the rest of the world. So when you start to realize this dynamic of the Lord using the little colt of a donkey, it's a great picture of you and me. We're the ones who are supposed to carry Christ that people might see Jesus. It's not about the donkey. I finished with this final little story and it's not about Palm Sunday, it's about Palm Monday. What did the little donkey, the cult of the donkey do on Palm Monday? Well, someone wrote a little story and I'll just read it quickly. The little donkey woke up Monday morning. His mind was still savoring the afterglow of the most exciting day of his life. Never before had he felt a rush of pleasure and pride and joy when people laid palm branches before him and their clothes so he could walk on them. So that morning, Monday morning, he walked into town and found a group of people by a well. He said, I'll show myself to them, he thought. But they didn't even notice him. They went on drawing their water and paid him no mind. Throw your cloaks down, he said crossly. Don't you know who I am? And they just looked at him in amazement. 
Someone slapped him across the rear and ordered him to move out of the way. Miserable heathens, he muttered to himself. I'll just go to the marketplace where the good people are and they'll remember who I am. But the same thing happened. No one paid attention to the donkey as he strutted down the main street in front of the marketplace. Palm branches, where are the palm branches? Yesterday you threw down palm branches. Hurt and confused, the donkey returned home to his mother. Foolish child, she said gently. Don't you realize that without him, you're just an ordinary donkey? <laughs> I like that story, because that's you and me. We think we're big stuff, but without Christ in our temple, without Christ filling us, we're just an ordinary person, one of you know, seven billion people on this planet that's kind of meaningless. But with Christ in you, not only does that mean you're saved and you're going to heaven for all eternity and you're not gonna go to hell, that's really good news, but also Christ in you gives your life meaning and value. You cr were created according to you know, Re Revelation chapter 4, 11. You were created for his pleasure and, and for that purpose only. When we live to make ourselves magnified or to have everybody see us, it's a lose-lose. But when you live your life to say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the one, the donkey that God uses to, to point people to Christ, that gives your life legitimate meaning and value. Whatsoever you do, do heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Don't store up treasures on this earth where moth, rust, and you know, thieves come and break in and steal, but set your affections on things above. Like the Bible teaches you and me that it's kind of all about Jesus. And if you don't realize that, if it's all about you and building yourself up, you're gonna be the most miserable. But if it's all about realizing you're just the little you know, donkey vehicle that Christ can use to be magnified, to be glorified. I see a beautiful picture here for us and a reminder to glorify God, to have Christ in your life. That's the best thing you can do. So on this Palm Sunday, a word to the wise, it's all about Jesus, amen? Amen. Lord, how thankful I am that you use the weak and the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. That you can use each one of us, no matter how small we are, whatever personality gaps or quirks we have, no matter what our weak areas are, Lord, you choose to use us. Help us, Lord, to remember this, not to try to be glorified or honored among people of ourselves, Lord, but I pray that on this Palm Sunday, we'll remember it's all about you. We thank you for your word, this Palm Sunday story, perfectly fulfilling your word. Lord, it just confirms the truth of scripture once again. But also, Lord, I pray that we'd understand your heart, that it's a heart of meekness and humility and, and let, let, letting that same attitude be on our lives, Lord. Help us to be humble and, and remember who we are and who we aren't and that we would give glory to your holy name. So Lord, just bless these, your people, on this Palm Sunday morning. Thank you for your word. We bless you in Jesus' name, amen.